0: Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are your hosts, Michael Koloparnbeth, Akela Gill, and Connor Fraser. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, vaccines have proven to be the most effective tool in slowing the virus. However, the government's strategy of vaccine mandates and further lockdowns have failed to convince many unvaccinated Canadians about the value proposition that vaccines offer. The recent Freedom Convoy is evidence of frustrations boiling over. This episode will focus on discussing this issue and potential best steps moving forward. Additionally, we will talk about the departure of Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative perspective on the Freedom Convoy and Pandemic Management. For our first segment, we are joined by Peter Loewen, who is the Director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He is also a Professor in the Department of Political Science, the Director of Pearl, a Senior Fellow at Massey College, and a fellow with the Public Policy Forum.
1: Thank you so much for joining me today, Peter.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So you've authored multiple Public Policy Forum reports about public hesitancy and skepticism in Canada. And I'd like some of our discussion today to be around the findings in these reports. So one of your findings in January 2021 was that roughly 17% of Canadians were either unsure or unwilling to be vaccinated. What do you think some of these determinants of unwillingness that you found in your report are? And do you think that these are the same internal factors driving people to protest now?
2: It's a very good question. Thanks for asking it. We've done a lot of work on vaccine hesitancy in my lab, Pearl, and with the Media Ecosystem Observatory, and a lot of it with Eric Merkley, my co-author. And I think there are two main findings that we can frame this with, right? And they basically tell us what the two main drivers of vaccine hesitancy are in Canada and and really elsewhere. And one of them is people's level of concern about COVID. And the second is, generally speaking, the degree of their trust in government and in public institutions. So if you think about those two things as being separate drivers of vaccine hesitancy, it starts to explain a bit of the dynamics of why hesitancy to vaccines is a dynamic process, which is to say why it's changing. Over time, And I think it highlights the the policy challenge of, you know, reaching the last 15% of adult Canadians uh, and reaching Canadians in the future to get other other vaccines. So on the concern side, what this really is, is if you have a higher degree of concern about COVID, if you're more worried about the effect of COVID on yourself and or the people you care about, you're more likely to get vaccinated. Now, of course, that'll seem obvious for people who are who are worried about about COVID. But what I want to highlight is kind of two features of that that make this vaccine hesitant group a dynamic one. One is that I'm not sure our rhetoric about the severity of COVID has always matched the facts on the ground. That's not to say that public health people have been deceptive or dishonest or unforthcoming about the severity of COVID, but we have to recognize that the situations we talk about, should COVID ever reach certain levels in the population, we haven't realized. Because we've taken different public health measures and people have taken, everyday people have taken everyday actions to deal with COVID. So if you're a a person who doesn't follow the science carefully, so to speak, or is just a a passive observer of this in some ways, what you see on one hand is people talking about COVID being this huge threat to the population. And then as of December of 2021, less than 10% of Canadians have been infected by COVID. Which means that the average person knew less, you know, of everyone they knew, less than one in ten of them had had been infected on average. So, in some ways, you can see where the where the rub is here, right? That we keep hearing that COVID is a really big deal, and it is, but we don't actually see it running, you know, running rampant through the population like people have said it could. Precisely because people are getting vaccinated and wearing masks and and staying home and doing common sense things to protect themselves. So that's one element of it. So, you know, some people see the risk and some people don't. And people just have different degrees of risk aversion generally. The other dynamic part of that, which I think is really important, is that as we get vaccinated more and as we build in more population-level protections for COVID, the less we actually have to be concerned about it. If you were to imagine uh, Omicron coming to Canada in December of 2020, not December of 2021, it would have been a much different story because we didn't have vaccination coverage at that point in time, a rational person would have been more concerned about Omicron than they are now. So there is this sort of double bind that occurs in that the more people get vaccinated, the less population level concern over COVID should be. And that concern drops among those who are vaccine hesitant, as well as among those who are already vaccinated. So in some ways, each incremental success in getting the population more vaccinated makes it harder to convince the remaining portion to take that last step themselves. So that's the concern piece. And then there's really the piece about trust in science, trust in government. Some of that is politicized, but how you feel about uh, the government federally or the government provincially. Some of it is a broader set of beliefs or feelings about science and about scientific experts and about whether we should defer to people or whether we should do our own research, um, so to speak. And that's a huge driver of vaccine hesitancy. Now, I wanna say this really clearly There is expertise on vaccines. People who are epidemiologists and public health experts and people who work in the production of vaccines and people who work in the trialing and the testing of vaccines and family doctors, some public health officials, these people are experts about what vaccines do. I'm not an expert. I've published a little bit on vaccine uptake, but I'm not an expert on on how vaccines work. And uh, nor is anybody else out there who's just reading about the stuff on the internet doing their own research. So let's just put that belief on the table right now. At the same time, it's hard to argue that those who are making public health recommendations have really covered themselves in glory over the course of this pandemic. Wrong about masks in uh, in March and April of 2020. As far as I know, no apology about being wrong wrong about masks. We overstated the effectiveness and the public health consequences of vaccination through the first waves of vaccination. Anyone in the public who was listening carefully could reasonably conclude that if we got two shots, we were going to get out of the pandemic. That wasn't true. And it was knowable that that wasn't true to the people who were who were saying it. So there are these things that we've done throughout this whole pandemic where I think to to be really bald about it, to be really frank and candid about it, people who are leading the, the, the COVID response have not always been frank and candid with the population. It's two weeks to crush the curve. Right. That was like 100 weeks ago. Vaccines were going to get it out. We're going to have a one shot summer. There was going to be two shots. It was going to get us out. That, that's not just not true. It didn't work out that way. So there is a degree of vaccine skepticism or hesitancy, which is rooted in a distrust of science. Now, I still think that science is more right than it is wrong. And I'm ready to defer to the experts uh, in their views on uh, in their recommendations of what we should be doing. But I think that what you've got now is, you know, there's a combination of kind of a political ideological aversion to the federal, to the federal government for various reasons, um, some good, some bad. You have a general skepticism about vaccines. Then you have people who can find examples who can motivate themselves to believe that they should not be trusting public health experts in Canada. And that's really where we've gotten ourselves to. And I think, frankly, it is going to be close to impossible. If you look at that last 15% of people, it's going to be impossible to get the two thirds of them, the last 10 points of them um, vaccinated. They're just not going to do it. You can try to do it through passports. You can try to do it through other through other restrictions and other, and other requirements. I just don't think they're going to do it. So, you know, and part of that is because they just don't believe that COVID is, is a big deal. God help them that they get infected. And part of it is because they just don't want to believe what government's told them. And I can see why they have the reasons to believe that, though I think it's the wrong view. But I guess if you ask, you know, what's different now from when we were writing our reports on this in the summer of 2020, spring and summer of 2020, the real difference now is that A, COVID is less of a threat objectively uh, to the population because we've done the right things, but B, there is a much deeper reservoir of distrust towards the federal government and towards the scientific community now than there was 12 months ago.
1: So yesterday a liberal MP spoke out about his own thoughts on the issue and how they differ from the approach Prime Minister Trudeau has taken in addressing the public. The political divide emerging within Canada between protesters and non-protesters, conservatives and liberals, and even now within the Liberal Party itself is ever growing. So what can politicians do to unite Canadians on the issue moving forward?
2: It's a very good question and it's a very difficult one to know the to know the answer to. So yesterday Drew Lightbound, who is a, a Quebec MP, Uh, as you say, kind of came out and and criticized his own government for a couple of things, right? One was that the decisions that they've made lately around, for example, mandating vaccinations for truckers driving over the border, 90% of truckers are vaccinated, we're told, but nonetheless, that that was not based in epidemiology. um, And he doesn't know the evidentiary basis for it, which is a huge charge to make against the government that claims to follow the science and does for the most part. And the second thing that he claimed essentially is that he takes issue with the prime minister politicizing differences between, between people and on objective grounds, trying to leave the politics out of it. It is true that if you look at the, the kind of campaigning that prime minister Trudeau did in the last election, he campaigned on mandating vaccinations for travel, mandating vaccinations for the federal workforce, and he made it a wedge issue. Now, Whether you think that's right or wrong, if you put yourselves in the shoes of a person who has concerns about vaccination, what you see is is a prime minister campaigning on the the enthusiastic belief that he should be able to keep you from getting on an airplane, from being paid and working if you work for the federal public service, um, from uh, easily getting back into your own country. So if you, just, if you put yourself into, into the shoes of a person who's concerned about, about vaccines, I've got three shots, by the way, I'm not concerned at all, but if you put yourself into the shoes of a person who's concerned about vaccines, boy, that's probably a pretty uh, angering thing to hear. You probably feel like your government isn't on your side in that case. Now, the question is, can you separate the politics away from the policy? Is there a way to do this where you put the mandates in place, but you don't try to, you don't appear to do it for political reasons? And of course there is. Right, I mean, what you could do as a prime minister is say we're going to put these mandates in place, but it's not something we're going to campaign on, right? And and you can choose to talk about something else. But I think, frankly, prime minister really ramped up the politics on that. And on the other side of it now, uh, Pierre Poiliev in particular, is is clearly come out against mandates on the substantive side of the of the truckers in uh, in Ottawa, and he's setting himself up as the person who's on that side of that debate. So this is getting. This is really getting politicized quickly and deeply. What I would love to see a politician do, if I was talking to Mr. probably, what I would love to see him do is, is to state the truth of this, which is the following that the reason we have gotten through the pandemic for the last two years, it hasn't been, it's been far from perfect, but the reason we've gotten through it without nearly as many deaths as we could have had and nearly as much long term consequence from the virus as we could have had is because everyday people. Took everyday actions to protect themselves and others. They wore masks, they stayed home, they avoided birthday parties, they canceled Christmas, they canceled other holidays, they forwent Thanksgiving, they didn't see their friends and family. And that's they didn't come to class in person. For your cohort, that means three of four semesters. You weren't effectively with your with your friends and with your colleagues. Everyday people made sacrifices every day. And the idea that this is we got out of this because of inspired political leadership doesn't bear up to the data. We got out of it because people were willing to make massive sacrifices actually in, in aggregate to protect others. So I think a shrewd politician would acknowledge that and would say that we should thank all Canadians for the part that they've done. People have done it differently. Some people are happy to wear masks, some aren't, right? But you know, there's all these behaviors we, we engage in that are, some are safe and some are dangerous. But I think the way to heal this actually and move beyond it is to say, we got to recognize we got through this because people were willing to make sacrifices, and now let's put a clear end date and a clear metric on when we're going to be through this, and 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 really identify when these things are going to are are going to end, uh, which is essentially what Mister Lightbound, the Quebec MP, asked for yesterday. Right? Was a clear clear date to get out of this. I guess what I would say, Michaela, is I have a very hard time believing that we're going to mandate vaccines forever. I have a hard time believing that we're going to mandate boosters forever. There are too many parents who won't have their kids in in work as a part of it. There's too many small businesses that don't want to lose 10% of customers because they won't show QR code when they come through the door, when it's at some point just won't be necessary. So if you have a, a government that won't tell you when the mandates are going to end, you have to ask yourself why, right? And one reason might be that they don't know when they're going to end, they haven't thought about it. Okay, well, it's probably time to come up with an answer. Another reason may well be that they just don't want to admit that they're going to end at some point because they don't want some adverse behavioral response from people, or they just don't want to admit that at some point they won't be necessary because that would take a lot of air out of the politics of it, right? So I think what would be best would be if politicians on both sides could kind of concede or on all sides of this, could concede that these mandates are not going to be here forever, could have a debate about when they're necessary and how long we need them for, and then you know, let people pass their own judgments in the polls and uh, and maybe at the ballot box at some point about which which side they think is um, is best.
1: In another report, you discuss the potential different ways in retrospect that the Canadian government could have handled or approached the pandemic, and you outline these in three sets of policy choices: the application of lockdowns, the use of technology-based tracking and tracing mechanisms, and prioritization of vaccine rollouts. So, what were your findings and recommendations from this research?
2: Yeah, so this was this was a thanks for asking. This was a fun paper because it looked back. It was written in July of 2021, so it looked back over the kind of 15 months prior and asked what we could have done differently to have handled the pandemic better. And I think the lessons actually, they're getting a little 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 shelf worn right now, but they but they're still they're still applicable. And the basic story was the following was that on lockdowns we should have articulated what the goal of lockdowns was, and as far as I can tell, I think the goal was to control the virus. But that's actually a very uninspiring goal. And what I argued in the paper is we should have decided what social good we wanted beyond the uh, controlling the virus and then focused everything on that. And I think what that should have been was keeping schools open. We should have said, politicians should have said that our number one priority is to control the virus so we can keep children in school. And why do we want to keep them in school? Because on balance, kids do well in school in terms of their learning. On balance, it's probably good for their, for their mental health on balance it helps their parents work we have to be honest about that i've got i've got children it's easier to work when my kids are in school than it is when they're at home and then politicians should have calibrated lockdowns to you know on severity to the level of severity which which would allow for schools to remain to remain to remain open and then people could understand the trade-off that was being made and they could judge on that trade-off right what we did instead was we were driven by case counts, particularly ICU loads, some degree of testing capacity, and we turned up or turned down kind of lockdown severity based on, based on that. And schools just became a part of that equation for controlling the virus. I think that was the wrong, I think that was the wrong move. And I, I actually, well, I'll, I'll tell you that for various jurisdictional reasons, our kids stayed in school because they go to Montessori longer than kids in public school. Um, so I was very, my family is very fortunate. But for those people who had their kids home essentially for a year and a half, it's heartbreaking actually to think about the long-term consequences of that for, for kids. All bounce back from working at home for two years, right? It's tough for small businesses for sure, and we had to give them income supports for that. But I think we have probably done it is measurable, so it's not a measurable damage, but we've done measurable damage to kids by keeping them out of school for so long. So the first argument was, We should have focused lockdown policy. You can disagree that the goal should have been keeping schools open, but articulate another goal. If it was keeping restaurants open or gyms open, if that's what you care about, articulate the goal, right? But we should have had a debate about what social good we were trying to protect rather than having a debate about just controlling the virus. The other reason for that, Michaela, is not only because it was about keeping kids in school, but it's also because that would have aligned the political incentives better. What happened throughout this thing was, politicians were frankly too deferential to public health authorities and those public health authorities have one number on the brain or a couple numbers on the brain, case counts and ICU capacity. I understand why they're concerned about that but that's a sliver of the moon and the job of politicians is to look at the whole of the moon. It's it's to look at the whole picture and see whether all the trade-offs we're making are the the right ones but instead what did they say? Effectively we have no choice. We're just following the science. Well, you know, public policy is more than science, right? It's it's much more multidimensional than just some public health metrics driving decisions. So that was the first argument, right? That in specific terms, we should have calibrated lockdowns, keep schools open. In more general terms, we should have set a goal beyond just controlling the virus and then, you know, um, made our policy choices in response to that goal or in pursuit of that goal. The second argument was that we kind of blew it on the contact tracing app. So the basic story of, of the COVID-19 alert app is that it's just a it's a proximity app. So you put it on your phone, you turn it on with Bluetooth, right? It records whose phone you were close to, but not where you were close to each other. So if you and I both had the app on, we stand next to each other in a grocery store line for some period of time. The Our phones communicate through Bluetooth and it becomes clear that our phones were beside one another. If I go then go and get COVID and I put in my positive case key into the app, it alerts you that you were standing by somebody who had COVID, but it doesn't tell you where you were. It doesn't tell you how long you were exposed to them for. So all of a sudden, what can't you do, right? You can't say, oh, it says I was, it says I was standing next to person. I was outside. I, I know that's okay now. I'll, I'll go get tested. But I don't need to be as worried. So in some ways, it was, a, it was an app that really optimized on privacy. And my argument essentially is that privacy shouldn't have been our goal here. Information should have been our goal. What we should have done is adopted an app that would have maximized the amount of information that it provided. Now, the argument against that is people would not have used the app if it didn't have privacy protections. But I think there's two responses to that. One is like people use all sorts of apps that have no privacy protections. It's why you think your phone's talking to you, right? Because it knows the story you're in. And then two weeks later, it starts pushing you ads on Instagram to buy the thing that you were probably looking at. Or the thing that your friend was looking at, and then you were talking to them about the proximity of your phones tells you you should, you know, look at what they were looking at. It's remarkable how predictive and effective it is, and we, and we allow it in all sorts of other aspects of our lives. So I'm I'm just not convinced empirically that people really care about the privacy all that much. And the second thing is is that I think the government should have made a positive case for it. And I think I make the you know the argument in the paper that what government should have done is to say, we really think this we think this app is very important. It'll be a key point of of, uh, fighting COVID by keeping you safe and by letting you know if you were exposed and when and maybe by whom and then being able to communicate to your network. And if you're willing to trust us and you're willing to use this app, we'll pay for your cell phone bill for a month or for three months or six months. You know, now cell phone bills in Canada are egregiously high, but ding, 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 that would have been a chance for the government to go to the cell phone companies and say, hold on, you charge $100 a month? for something that costs 40% as much in every other self-respecting country. Uh, What we're going to do is we're actually going to pay you that $40, $50 a month, and you're going to give everyone free mobile phone service throughout the pandemic. And then we'll talk about your prices when we're done. It could have actually had the the second salutary benefit of of starting to whip the telcos into shape. Nonetheless, I think government should have made it financially attractive for people to use it. They should have articulated why they wanted the pe- people to use it and how ha- have them understand that. And then we may have gotten the uptake rates that we needed to make the app work. As it turned out, the government's numbers say that 6 million people downloaded the app. No reason to gainsay that that, that estimate. That's basically a fifth of adult Canadians. It's just not enough. So the app would not have worked from the beginning because it needs more coverage than that to work uh, under the modeling. The government never told people, by the way, that the app didn't have enough downloads and it didn't tell them that they weren't updating it. And it basically doesn't provide you with any protection anymore. So for people who've labored under the misapprehension for the last year that that app was giving them any sort of security, they were wrong. So kind of all the way through, I think it was, I think it was a failure and it's not the end of the world. Like it wouldn't have saved us from COVID, but it's one, it's just another thing that we I think could have done better. And then the third argument is that we kind of screwed up the prioritization of vaccine rollouts. Um, And I'll just, I'll I'll explain to you this way. Colleagues and I did a study in, in 13 countries whose combined population represents the majority of the world, India, China, Canada, United States, Russia, France, and, and others. And what we did in that study, it's in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, is we showed people profiles of different people. And we said, out of these two people, who do you think should get the vaccine first? Who should be prioritized? And what you find is that people have kind of the same views everywhere. They think that healthcare workers should be prioritized, that the elderly should be prioritized, that the immunocompromised should be prioritized. But the most interesting thing out of that is that citizens have a very wide capacious view of who is an essential worker if you ask them should a grocery store worker have been prioritized they say yes right uh basically any person who's working in a service industry where they can't work from home people thought those individuals should have been prioritized we didn't prioritize those people right we we basically went hunger game style I mean, once we once we got into our targeted populations and did some geographic targeting, we then just sort of said, we're going to open it up now and go and get the vaccine. And that worked in terms of getting the numbers up in terms of how many people were vaccinated. But what it what it didn't do is it didn't effectively target the people who we needed to get right away. All these people who were making it possible for people like me to work from home should have been prioritized. This is a question of capacity, because if you actually look at the way governments prioritized, they were on the one hand too narrow in their application, and then uh, too narrow in their targeting, and then too broad in their application. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. One of the ways the government started targeting vaccines was by forward sortation area, which is the first six digits or first three digits of your six digit postal code. Okay, so it would look at forward sortation areas that low degrees of vaccination, and maybe high degrees of infection, it would go into those places. So for example, if you look at the heat map of vaccination rates, in early 2020, kind of early spring of 2020, and you look at downtown Toronto, you see that the area around Ryerson had really low rates of vaccination. And that's also an area that has a fair amount of public housing or low income housing. So, government targeted those, that forward sortation area, right? But that area also has a really high degree of people living in expensive condos. Who were could then go to these clinics and no need to get to be prioritized to, back, to get vaccinated, but could line up right. So the narrow the targeting was too narrow in its conception. We'll we'll go by by postal code rather than go by service industry or go by or go by other uh, other predictors of of vulnerability. So it was too narrow, in its targeting but then too broad in its application. Um, and I think that that speaks to a lack of data, to some degree, a lack of imagination, but mostly a lack of data. But also a kind of Really, sort of pedantic egalitarianism of, of of Canadians. I mean, you know, infections were happening at warehouses in in West Toronto, right, uh, and at and at and at food processing plants. This, this this is where outbreaks were occurring through the spring of 2020. And I don't know. I'm pretty sure that if we had delivered to Amazon a million vaccines, they could have got them to everybody who was working in those places. So we didn't do that, right? Because I don't, I actually don't know why, right? And and I don't think, I think our vaccine rollout was a success on balance. You know, we were a little late in getting supply, but, but, and we certainly didn't get our production ramped up, but conditional upon that, we did a good job, but I just think we could have done better on targeting earlier on. And the reason why that's important, Michaela, is because at least in part, who we target tells us about who we value. And I think we could have really generated a greater sense of social solidarity by targeting people who really needed the vaccine. I got my vac- first vaccine in April because I got a friend who's a pharmacist who owns a shopper's drug mart. And I called him and he got me an appointment, right? So, you know, that's that's privilege all, all the way through, right? And and if government has instead said, you know, if you really don't need a vaccine, there are these people we're going to prioritize before you. And we ask you to put them in front of you in the line as a bit of social sacrifice. I think we all could have had a greater sense of uh, togetherness, of, of self-sacrifice for others, of the warm glow that comes from from helping other people. So, you know, those are those are the pieces, right? We didn't get lockdowns right. We, we didn't use technology the way we could have. And then we didn't prioritize the rollout of vaccines the way we could have.
1: The violent, racist, and disrespectful aspects of the protests happening across the country, they're not condoned by beyond the headlines, they're not condoned by the Monk School or by the majority of Canadians. Um, but I think it's important to discuss those less extreme but still prominent requests coming out of the protests. And I think you've touched on a few of them already but namely that Canadians wish for the mandates to be reviewed, to be presented with a clear plan um, as to when to end lockdowns in the country. And so are widespread vaccination and lockdowns still the best approach for ending the pandemic in Canada?
2: So that's a a difficult question because there's a a political aspect to it and then there's a public health aspect to it. On, On the political aspect, I don't think so. I think we're at the place where it's going to be very hard to rally the public unless we have a massive wave of, of COVID in the fall, it'll be very hard to rally the public to, to support mass lockdowns again. People have gotten vaccinated, right? They're getting boosted. People are still wearing masks if you ask them to, for the most part. Like the, All these protests aside, most people still comply with it, with the simple things they're asked to do. So, you know, can you go severe on lockdowns? I just think that people are too tired of it. So I think that's... A, that's a real constraint on constraint on government. From a public health perspective, I don't know what the best thing to do is uh, given given Omicron right now. I mean, it looks like as case counts are 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 declining, we can slowly start opening things back up again, right? Um, and summer's coming. It's always hard to believe that in February, but summer will come in three months. Um, and with warmer warmer weather comes more capacity to be outside and less and less concern about viral spread indoors. So. No, I mean, I think I think the politics of this are that these mandates will be lifted at some point, right? Um, now, whether they get, you know, where they get lifted is a is a is a is a tough question because it's a multi-jurisdictional thing, right? People are wrong to say that the prime minister is not responsible for these mandates. The federal government's not responsible. It is the one mandating federal workers for airline for air travel, for train travel, and for crossing the border. Those are federal matters, so the protests are properly targeted at the at the correct government. But there are other things like you know, masking doors and, and whether schools are open or not. And what, what types of businesses that can be open, which are clearly provincial. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of actors who've got to decide here, but I think politically the pressure to lift mandates eventually, certainly the pressure to put a date an end date on these things is going to be unavoidable for, uh, for governments. And I think that's probably fair because I think the government should have been giving people clearer timelines and, and, and more information on what they were doing, when and why, than they, than they have been. One of the reasons they haven't been doing it is pure incompetence across all levels of government. It's not malevolent or, or conspiratorial. They just haven't been good at doing it or thinking that way. But I think they'll be thinking about it a little bit more into the, into the future. The broader questions around these protests are really tough. I don't think it's acceptable. In my own view, uh, my own professional view on this is that is that a government just can't have people making it impossible for politicians to travel to and from our parliament feeling threatened. So that's really a question of this thing, right? Could a politician walk through that protest and feel safe? And if they couldn't, that's the problem, right? And if it's the case that we actually can't have effective functioning of our, of our, of our capital, that's a, that's a problem, right? You know, on the, on the broader do, kind of political dynamics of it, I think it's going to be very hard
0: to unwind that protest anytime soon.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much, Peter, for sharing your insights with us today.
2: Thanks for having
0: me. Once again, that was Peter Lowen the Director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Up next, we are joined by John Capobianco, who is the Public Affairs National Practice Lead at Fleischmann-Hillard High Road's Toronto office. John ran is a federal Conservative candidate in the 2004 and 2006 elections under the leadership of Prime Minister Stephen Harper and is recognized as a leader in the Conservative movement. John continues to be a regular political commentator in Canada's national media,
3: several months have passed since the fall 2021 election. What did you feel were the strengths of the Conservative Party in this election, and why did the result ultimately turn out badly for the Conservatives?
4: Well, and that's a good question. I've obviously had some, some time to reflect on it. I was I was quite active in the, in the recent election. In my local riding here in Etobicoke Lakeshore, we had a really good candidate who um, unfortunately, wasn't successful, but but really put on a good a good fight. I think you know a lot of factors come into play here. First off, we have to go back to when Aaron O'Toole was elected leader. You know, he was the only leader ever elected during COVID, right during a pandemic when there was a lockdown. So you know, Canadians when normally a leadership would happen, you'd have a chance to be able to meet with Canadians, you'd go to events and rallies and all that kind of stuff, and really you know, and, and get yourself introduced to to Canadians and and to party members. Uh, while you're running for leadership. And then, of course, when you win, post-leadership. And that never really happened. You know? So Errol Toole became leader of the party at a time when, when you know, everybody was focused on healthcare and lockdowns and all that kind of stuff. So it didn't really play a significant part. So he kind of came in uh, at a very quiet time as, as a leader of, of, a, of a national party when normally you would get a lot of attention and a lot of media. So that, I think, hampered him between the election and between the leadership and the election. When the election happened, if you recall, you know one of the one of the smart things and, and strategic things that Aaron Tool did was he launched this platform with you know day two of the election campaign. So and of course it, it it got a lot of attention and it got a lot of playback and and feedback from from Canadians and it almost automatically got Canadians introduced to Arnold Tool at a time at a critical time in an election campaign when that wasn't happening so much leading up to it. And I think that really helped him. That helped him get some, some attention, helped him get some, some uh, uh, people focusing on his, uh, on his policies. And then quite frankly, the election, started, we started talking about the conservative policies because his document was out before all the other parties were. Um, so I think that worked out well. And that gave us a little bit of wind in our sails going into the campaign. And then to your question about what happened, I think halfway through the campaign, the Liberals used the gun issue Uh, as one of the wedge issues and and basically, you know, criticized Aaron O'Toole and the party for having guns in the policy platform. Uh, And, you know, and when you start to trying to defend guns and trying to limit guns and gun bans, that never really works well because it's not one of those topics that Canadians want to hear during election campaign. So that was one. And then I think the other one was obviously the vaccines and the fact that, you know, the party was never really strong uh, with respect to uh, to vaccines and it became this politicized issue that the prime minister quite frankly politicized during the campaign and made people either with vaccines or without vaccines when quite frankly we should be working we should have all been working together to try to get as many people vaccinated as possible and not pitting one against the other. And our party got entangled in that and I think those are the two issues i would say that probably led, to our defeat um, in that, you know, when we were leading in the polls, it was about the economy and the recovery and and the issues that are strong with conservatives. And then in the second half of the campaign, it became on issues that were much stronger with with the liberals uh, and took away the attention from us. And that's why I think we lost and, and but, you know, got the liberals into a minority government, which, which, quite frankly, I think Canadians wanted. And that was a, that was a loss to the, to the Prime Minister. The Justin Trudeau came into this election full well, wanting a majority government, and he didn't get it.
3: Yeah, I, I agree that uh, politicizing the vaccine issue was wrong. And I think a lot of the, the backlash that we're seeing today is almost a reflection of that, pitting one person against the other. And it's not as if, you know, everyone has their their opinions, everyone is entitled to their beliefs. And I think the ultimate goal here should be to, you know, convince everyone um, on their own accord of what is right and what is wrong and not force people to, you know, pick a side or, you know, you get your vaccine or else you're losing your job sort of thing. So it's unfortunate that uh, we saw greater uh, politicization of these issues going throughout the campaign. and, And this ultimately turned out badly for the Conservatives. So fast forward to last week and Aaron O'Toole was removed as conservative leader. This was a huge shock for many people, including myself. Uh, Last week, I also listened to uh, an episode of Fight Back with Libby Zneimer, and John McTishan was on there quoting, you know, his sources were telling him that the O'Toole staff had thought they had the votes to overcome the leadership challenge hours before the vote actually happened. And then it turned out completely the opposite of what they expected. So did, did this rapid dismissal come as a shock to you
4: it did quite frankly I was uh, I was a supporter of Aaron tools I thought he you know notwithstanding the fact that we lost the campaign I thought he did a, a pretty good job you know we did we didn't win the popular vote over the Liberals which is not insignificant um we lost a couple of seats uh, from from the previous from the previous election campaign which of course caused some people some consternation. we didn't win as many in Ontario as we wanted to. Uh, or in Quebec, but we did win some, and we made a bit of a breakthrough in Atlantic Canada that we never had previously. So there were some wins, some losses, but ultimately when a party loses an election, uh, no one's happy, and, and including Aaron O'Toole, and, and it, it forces one to reflect and, and decide you know, what, what went right, what went wrong, and, and one of the first things Aaron O'Toole did after the election was, you know, was, was tag one of his former MPs, James Cumming, Uh, to do an analysis uh, of the election campaign. And that report came to caucus, I think, a little while ago, a week or two ago. Um, And and so I think it was a culmination of people not being happy with the fact that that Aaron sort of seemed to have pivoted from when he was running for leader and wanted to be the sort of the true blue conservative uh, to election policies and platforms that were much more middle of the road, things like the carbon tax and, and other issues that, that sort of tagged them more towards the moderate center than, than the right and and this is sort of the, the valued conservative issues that that certainly the West conservatives like to uh, like to see. So that caused some some dissension within the ranks. But I think a lot of the, the caucus members and the party were prepared to give them a bit of a break and say, okay, well look, you know, carry on, let's see what we can do, let's see if we can rebuild. We're in a minority government, which of course, uh, you know, there's no set time for the next election. So it could be a year from now, it could be. Eight months from now, it could be three years from now. So when you're uncertain about when the next election is going to be, you you kind of want to stick with the person you've got, build around them, and and you know and sort of fix the area errors that we had in the last campaign, but you know make yourselves a bit more stronger and more foolproof for the election coming. Since the election and since we saw Aaron O'Toole lose the uh, the vote in caucus, a number of a number of um, of of issues or or what some caucus members would call flip-flops took place and and they felt that the the party in Unity was cracking and, and there was more dissension than there was right after the campaign. And you know when they had that secret vote of caucus, they voted overwhelmingly to get rid of Arnold Tool, which he had no choice but to resign obviously. So that that caused a bit of a, a bit of a problem and, and an issue with uh, with the party. But you know we're seeing Candace Bergen now, Connor is is the interim leader and she um has in short order really rallied the troops and and has, has kind of got the, the the caucus united again which i think will be good for us to be on solid footing leading into what will be in a leadership convention
3: i think you answered almost fully the next question i was going to ask but i wanted to press a little further you mentioned there were some flip-flops since the election that caused people within within caucus to increasingly question Erin O'Toole's leadership. Can you just take us through a couple of these flip-flops?
4: Yeah, one of the ones was with the truck, uh, the convoy, right? We're, we're seeing that you know day by day in, in, in major cities, obviously in Ottawa, it's still an occupation, whereas here in Toronto, it was a bit of a one-day event. And the same with Quebec City, it was a, it was a one-day event. I think those respective uh, jurisdictions, I think handled handled the issue a little bit more definitely than, uh, than Ottawa has uh, and is handling it. But, but I think, you know, that the issue of the convoy and trying to tap into that, Aaron, I think flip-flopped at the initial stages where, you know, was, was sort of willing to, to meet with them and then didn't want to meet with them. And so there were some issues there that, that caused some problems. There were other issues within caucus, I think that on various bills that, uh, that Aaron was, you know, not, not as strong as, as others who hoped that he was, so there's a number of those kinds of things that, that just when you've got a loose grip on, on, you know, on support, um, any little deviation or any little aggravation that might cause could flip any number of MPs on the other side. Uh, and then there was some talk of, of Aaron sort of the day before the vote sent out an email to, um, uh, to party members, uh, and, and which is widely it was covered in the media. In, the, in that email, he basically said that, you know, caucus essentially has a choice between optimism versus anger uh, and that, you know, there was a day of reckoning and that he was looking forward to this vote uh, and that he was hoping that once the vote results were done, that we'd be over with and we can kind of carry on thinking that he was going to get the majority of the vote, right? So that all he needed was 50% plus one, but arguably he would need about 60% or so of caucus. So there was that email. I think that might have actually probably tipped a number of people on the other side. I would say that you know he's he had a he had a shadow cabinet of of about 50 plus MP, MPs, um, and for him to get 73 uh, against him, meant that a, a a big chunk of those shadow cabinet ministers that he had put in place voted against him. So, you know, it was a, it was a profound uh, uh, result that, that obviously, you know, was disappointing to, to not only Aaron and his family, obviously, but others. But again, I think the party is now focusing on looking forward. Uh, Candace Bergen has made it clear that that's the past, that her job now is to unite the caucus uh, and put the attention back on the prime minister where it should be. And his handling of the pandemic, his handling of the convoy, uh, you know, his handling of, of some of these issues or lack thereof that where it should be and not on the on the inside machinations of the conservative party which has been the focus for the last couple of months
3: yeah i i can't agree with you more there uh as a characteristic of a strong democracy is a strong opposition to hold the government to account and to present credible alternatives to canadians to really keep the governing party on point and make sure that they're not you know getting complacent or that they're not proposing things that are outrageous. So a strong Conservative Party going forward is ultimately good for Canada. So I've heard some arguments, you know, on on the subject of the Chalker convoy, I've heard some arguments made by my friends and neighbours and within the media that the Conservative Party has become out of touch. For example, several MPs such as, you know, former leader Andrew Scheer were photographed alongside members of the convoy in Ottawa, despite the damage that the protest continues to have on the national capital region. Do you believe that you know, especially uh, in light of the events surrounding the convoy, that the party is out of touch with mainstream voters.
4: Not at all. You know, I, I think it's important to make a distinction here that that you know, protests happen, um, and they're and they have every right to happen, and, and Canadians have a right to protest peacefully and, and safely, and uh, and and to do no harm to not only people within the protest but also people outside of the protest. And I think that. The initial um, understanding of, of the trucker convoy or this this protest was to, to kind of bring light to some of the some of the ailments that have been happening with truckers over the course of the pandemic. You know, truckers were deemed an essential service early on, and you know, one one needs to remember that the prime minister was out early on praising truckers and how they were, in, you know, they were an essential service and a lifeline to to us because of supply chains and keeping things going when. When others other means of transportation weren't so much able to so truckers were, were valued and, and if you also recall Connor there was a time early on in the pandemic when when certain gas stations along the highway rest stations along the highways wouldn't allow truckers to use to come in or use their use their uh, use their restrooms uh, which caused some problems and political leaders like you know premier Ford and others had to, had to ba- basically legislate and say that they' they're, they're not only allowed to they need to go into and and have these these rest breaks and whatnot. So there was a bit of a a misalignment of of truckers as time went on. And then of course, all of the rules and and regulations between travel between the US and Canada, whether or not going into the US you needed to be double vaxxed and coming back needed to be tested. All of that laid some concerns with truckers. So initially it was about that level of, of awareness. But then, you know, obviously, as, as the convoy went on and certainly as, as the protest has been, has, been, has been, you know, happening here, it's, it, other elements have gone in there, other, other elements have gone in, and it's caused now to become such a, a mixed message. And I think what happens with, with some protests is you lose the main message and you start losing Canadians when you overstay your welcome. You start causing unrest, uh, and also harassment, and, and and problems, and charges with with you know with people that are you're supposed to want to get on side, but you're not. And I think that's what this protest is happening, where you're starting to lose Canadians. Not notwithstanding, the fact, you're also getting foreign interests in this, with respect to not only funding but also in, in support of this of this uh, of this protest. But all that to say to your question, you know, it's one thing for people to condemn the protests. But there are certain protesters within that that actually are legitimate people that have legitimate concerns. And what we've seen with the conservatives is at least an, an olive branch to those people within the protests that have true genuine interests in wanting to get this issue resolved. And it's one thing for them to want to reach out to, you know, constituents that so we saw with Andrew Scheer who talked to his, his local constituents who were at the protests. and. And the other contrast, which is the prime minister basically calling them hooligans and and you know branding them all with one brush and, and not wanting to even engage in some level of negotiations, which quite frankly you need to have that tactic at least available to try to get rid of the uh, the protests. And if you eliminate that tactic as he has, because he's already talked about not wanting to negotiate with these guys, then they've, you're left you leave them with no other option but to entrench themselves, which is what which which is unfortunate.
3: The the idea of painting the entire movement with one brush, I think is wrong. And like you mentioned, there are people with very legitimate concerns and grievances uh, within that movement. And it's a very loosely organized movement too. So like you said, there's been lots of opportunities for people who maybe not didn't believe in the original message of the protest to attach themselves on and, and turn it into something that it originally wasn't. But uh, from my point of view, the 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 route forward for the Conservative Party is to just emphasize that you know they are they are respecting the views, the legitimate views of some of the people in the protest who who you know genuinely have have a perspective about vaccines and not the other people that have attached themselves uh, to this movement.
4: And, and Connor, I would also add too, if I could just quickly, that that just recently, Uh, Joel Lightbound, um, Liberal MP, a Quebec Liberal MP, who who just went public, basically, to say, and this this was not an insignificant Liberal backbencher, he actually, as president of the Quebec caucus, publicly stated that he actually disagrees with his governments, his own government's approach to the pandemic, uh, and also says that, you know, with the protests... Being antagonistic is not going to cause them to leave. So there is some. There's even within now a liberal who's basically saying what Candace Bergen and the conservatives have been saying for the last little while. But of course, because they're conservatives, the media will always attack them, you know, and equate them to Donald Trump, as we've seen with Candace Bergen. But when a liberal says it, well, it's a thoughtful process and it's a thoughtful, uh, uh, you know, uh, opinion uh, uh, of a liberal. But nonetheless, I'm just glad that this this liberal MP Joel Lightbound. Um, came out publicly and basically said that. I think that's going to be the discussion now, which is I think is going to turn things, uh, hopefully, to the better.
3: Yeah, we'll see how long his job lasts after this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so as we've been discussing, for most Canadians, management of the COVID-19 pandemic continues to be a a top priority. Uh, To your knowledge, could you... Maybe take us through some of the positions on pandemic management topics, such as vaccines, quarantines, rapid testing. Of the top candidates vying for Aaron O'Toole's job, or how do you think the party is going to approach these going forward?
4: Well, I think I think you know the pandemic is always going to be an issue now, and 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 hopefully you know not forever, but certainly for the next foreseeable future, because we're you know we're at this hopefully this last stage of it with this Omicron. Uh, Virant that uh, that is now sort of you know hopefully on 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 the downslaw or waning, um, but you know the, the challenge has always been the the difference between politicians needing to make decisions based on the scientific data that they get, but but also you know the fact that they also responsible for businesses and lives and, and other 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 people's well beings, whereas the scientific community and the, and the medical community. Um, their issue and their responsibility is on the medical side. And, and so they feed information that is data fact filled to politicians. Politicians have to take that and make decisions based on what they think is best, you know, for, for the economy and, and for, and for jobs and, and for lives and, and so forth. And in that contrast, I think early on in the pandemic, Connor, has, was, was quite strong where, you know, nobody knew about this pandemic. So everybody was freaked out about it. So whatever the government said with respect to lockdowns and, and not, you know, shaking hands and wearing masks, everybody adhered to that. You know, when the vaccines came, then, you know, the government said you have to get vaccinated. And, you know, the vast majority of Canadians got vaccinated, which is good. We still need more people to get vaccinated. But now I think people are getting a bit tired of it and say, OK, well, we can only do that so much. We can only have lockdown so much. So I think the next conservative leader uh, is going to be somebody who's going to have to cross that balance between the need to understand science and data uh, and making sure that, that, that people are still safe, whilst still ensuring that at some point the economy has got to come back and we've got to kick it into gear and that the re- post-pandemic recovery has to happen at some point, that's the balance that the new leader is going to have to do, deal with.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I've heard uh, increasingly in the media that, you know, that there are health costs from uh, the pandemic that are ongoing. People are still dying. Hospitals are overflowing, but there are also you know, huge social costs to continuing lockdowns and those also need to be considered and as the pandemic continues on and on those other social costs are only going to increase and those are very legitimate uh, costs to consider because people's lives are being lost there too.
4: Yes and mental health uh, Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately is is, uh, rates are are, are going higher. There's just a lot of of, of collateral damage that's happening as a result of, of the pandemic. So not only are people getting sick because of it, but also the, the collateral damage of, of businesses and healthcare care and, and mental health and so forth. Um, big issues that, that I think may continue for a little bit longer.
3: Regardless of who wins the leadership race, how does this party win the next election? And by, by that, I mean, what are some legitimate pathways in terms of issues that conservatives should focus on? that will resonate with the mainstream voters in Southern Ontario and Quebec? Because I feel that, you know, I was looking at a map of the election outcomes in 2019 and 2021, and in Southern Ontario, at least in the Greater Toronto area where there are a significant number of seats, the Conservatives didn't win a single seat in the last two elections. So I feel like that area is the key. And the moderate voters, moderate vote, conservative voters like my, my parents, you know, we're, we're a little bit turned off by, by the last two campaigns. So how, how are the Conservatives going to appeal to those segments?
4: Yeah, and I know of what you speak, Connor. I was a two-time candidate uh, here in, in the 416, in my local riding of Etobicoke Lakeshore back in 2004 and 2006, of course, losing both of them, unfortunately. But uh, so I know how hard it is to be a Conservative running in uh, not only in the 416, but in the 905 in, in some cases. Um, you know, we've seen governments in the past, you know, namely Stephen Harper and, and Mike Harris, provincially and federally, um, who have who have successfully won seats in those areas. And and even l- last time, Premier Ford won some some major gains in the in the 416 and the 905. But when you talk about Premier Ford, Stephen Harper federally, and or Mike Harris back in 1995, you're talking about leaders that have a principled stand and in a in and in a solid conservative compass. The next leader of the conservative party, he or she is going to have to determine what that conservative compass is and stick to it. I think that, you know, what we saw with Aaron O'Toole was, you know, running on leadership to be a true blue conservative and then tacking to the center, uh, which, you know, he has every right to do as leader. But when some when people vote for you for a certain reason and then you kind of change that. You, that's where you get that that you know the, the 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 loyalty kind of waning, and and that's what I think we saw with with arrow two. Now, had you won, of course, everybody would have been happy, and, and he would have been successful. <clears throat> but when you lose, uh, then all of a sudden, everybody gets you know everybody gets the microscopes out uh, to see what, exactly what happened. So I think the next leader has to have that compass, has to be able to focus on the economy issues that are strong. The conservatives, that Canadians see us as the one party that has legitimacy. And a focus and experience on which is the economy. And talking about the post-pandemic recovery or economy, that actually treated Errol Tool very well at the beginning of the campaign. When we got off that topic, is when we started losing. The next leader has to focus on that. That's why I think Pierre Prouvost has such a lead and, and could potentially be the the winner here because he was a, he was the shadow minister of finance, uh, and uh, and as such has has a lot of knowledge with respect to how. The economy can be recovered post-pandemic, and has been trying to get that details from the liberals, and, and to no know, to know success. But I think economy, I think understanding the healthcare system and the pandemic and how to deal with it post uh, post uh, you know the, the 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 post the pandemic, quite frankly, uh, are issues. And then just sticking to um, real conservative values that that people want. Nobody wants a liberal light. The the, the NDP are attacking to the left. Uh, the Liberals are not that much more to the right of the left of, of the NDP, uh, but they need a party that has a, a specific conservative stand and values, and I think you'll get a lot of support.
3: Yeah, I I wanted to f- finish up with one more question, and you, you talk about how Aaron O'Toole, and I noticed this very well, how during the leadership campaign, he was playing to one side of the party and proposing himself as a candidate uh, to champion certain issues, and then all of a sudden come uh, general election time, it was almost if he unzipped himself and uh, Peter McKay stepped out. So <laughs> do you do you feel that there is a chance for a candidate to win the leadership by, you know, championing, by being a champion of day one uh, of, you know, moderate conservative issues, as opposed to playing what Aaron O'Toole did to sort of Maybe the the true blue side of the party. Do you think there is an opening for someone like a Peter McKay, who is a like a physical conservative, maybe a law and justice conservative, but definitely not a social conservative, to take this party back? Uh, or do you think that we're we're going to the right?
4: No, I think I think this leadership is going to be a very important one. I think it is for the soul of the party. I think that there is this debate about. Whether or not the merger of the, of the two legacy parties is working has worked or not, I think Stephen Harper proved that it, 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 it has worked and can work. <laughs> I think what happened with Aaron O'Toole and the leadership, though, with respect to this, that uh, we've talked about, which is you know talking about being a true blue conservative and then and then tacking into the middle. I think Canadians and, and those who are you know, are going to be party members who are going to end up voting aren't going to be fooled a second time. So I think candidates are going to have a little bit more. Um, um, you know, challenges to their to their policies and to what they believe in because they're not going to want to be fooled again. So I think from that perspective, I think candidates are going to be able to sort of put out their platforms and promise that this is what, you know, who they are is, is what they see. And to that point, so yeah, you're going to get somebody like Pierre who's going to attack to the right. And I'm sure there's going to be others. We've heard people like Jean Charet's name being mentioned. You know, the former Quebec uh, premier and, and, you know, former, of course, conservative leader back in the day, you know, he's somebody who's very much a moderate conservative from Quebec, who a lot of people are trying to draft. So I think there'll be a number of voices, of depending on the rules and, and what that all comes about with with the party and how they come up with those rules. But you're going to see people who are going to be on the social conservative side of the party. Somebody are going to be like Pierre, that are much more on the on the conservative, small C conservative side of the party, and some who are probably going to be in the middle. That that it might be from the progressive conservative wing, um, but I just don't know that the appetite, given what we've seen uh, with Aaron O'Toole and how he tried to tack to the center unsuccessfully, uh, I don't know the appetite of the party. Quite frankly, is going to be for somebody who's going to be sort of that moderate red Tory kind of person. I think they're going to want to see somebody who's going to say, you know what, I'm a conservative, we are conservatives, and I've got conservative values, and that's what we're going to go for. And I think that's going to be an appeal for a lot of Canadian conservatives.
3: Mr. Capubianco, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate the discussion, and and, um, I hope you have a great rest of your day.
4: Connor, thank you so much for the opportunity, and I wish you well, and, and stay safe.
3: Thank you. You as well. Once again, that was John Capabianco.
0: You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us for part two of our discussion on COVID-19, assessing Canada's pandemic management and Arrow Tool's departure. Today's show is produced by Michael Culliparmuth, Michaela Gill, and Connor Fraser. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.